As we come to this portion of our service before we sing another song together, we want to have a time of prayer for, for it being Father's Day. So here's something that churches are notorious for, for doing, and I want to be really careful about this this morning. Mother's Day, we come together and we build up the moms. Moms are great. We love our moms. And then Father's Day, we come and beat down the dads. Dads, you're doing a terrible job. Pull it together. Come on now. Be a man. We want, to be, we want to be cautious about that because there are a lot of things that come with manhood, that come with fatherhood, that bring challenges. And one of the things that we value at Emmaus, and we talk about quite a bit, is what it means to be a multi-generational church. And you're going to see that played out at the very end of the service as we celebrate church membership. But right now, when I think about being a father, when I think about just, just being a man and trying to seek after the Lord, I'm so thankful that we have older men in the church that I can look to and say, that's what it looks like to be faithful to the Lord over a lifetime. That's what it looks like to be faithful to the Lord as a dad and a husband. Mr. Jim is our chairman of the deacons uh, this year, and so I've asked him to come and pray for the men, for the fathers uh, here in our church, and just to pray over our church that this would be a place where in every season of life that we're able to be faithful to the Lord and experience God's power. So, Mr. Jim, if you want to say anything, you can. If not, you can uh, just pray over our church family. I'm a man of few words, brother. <laughs> Amen to that. So, uh, they don't say that about me. but uh. Uh, uh, Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we come before you at this time, Lord, just uh, asking your blessings on our fathers. Lord, this is our, our special day of uh, remembrance of fathers, and uh, Lord, uh, we have uh, fathers, we have grandfathers, we have great-grandfathers in attendance today. So, uh, Lord, we ask uh, your blessings on each and every one of them. Uh, Lord, as uh, men, what we want to do is be examples. Lord, that's, uh, as the pastor says, that's uh, the greatest thing that we can do is be an example uh, to our children, to our friends, uh, to our fellow church members, Lord, and to all of those that we come in contact with, Lord. Uh, we uh, also want to do, Lord, as it says uh, in, uh, the, in your word, in the book of Deuteronomy, it says that we are to love you with uh, all, of our, uh, all of our heart, all of our strength, all of our soul. And, Lord, we want to do that and show that uh, to the public at large. And, and Lord, uh, the other part of that passage is that we're also uh, supposed to train up our children in the way that they should go. And Lord, we just pray that you would give us the strength and the knowledge and the understanding that we need to be able to do that uh, in this modern world. Uh, Lord, we just uh, ask your blessings this morning on our pastor. Lord, as uh, we ask for an anointing of your Holy Spirit on him as he brings the word to us. Uh, Lord, and just uh, bless uh, each and every one of us, Lord, here today. Uh, these things we ask in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. All right. At this point, if you would take your Bible and open to the book of Revelation, not Revelations, but singular, Revelation at the uh, very end of, of the Bible there, the last book in the New Testament, the last book in the entire Bible. If you have access to God's Word on your phone, feel free to, to pull that out of your tablet. We're going to be looking at Revelation chapter 2. 
What we're doing as a church family is we're coming back to something that we started in April where we were thinking about what is the message of the book of Revelation and how does that book where we see the revelation of God's victory through Christ over evil and over sin and the way that that's celebrated in the power of the church, how do we see that played out in the, in the entire book? And we've moved now, we took a little bit of a break, and we've moved now to where we're going to look at the seven churches in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. So for the next seven weeks, we're going to look at each of those seven churches that are there in chapters 2 through 3, which means that you'll know automatically for next Sunday which verses we're going to be looking at. And if you can read those verses with your kids before you come next Sunday, it helps them out because they're already familiar with those verses. It's good for us to be able to read those verses and prepare and look at God's Word together. So we're just going to take the next seven weeks, and I pray that it will be a powerful seven weeks for us as a church family to look at these churches listed in Revelation 2 and 3 and ask, what does that say to us? What does that say to us individually? What does that say to us as a church family here? So we're going to start that process this morning, and I've broken the message into two parts this morning, partly because what I want to do at the beginning here is I just want to introduce Revelation chapter 2 to 3. What are these seven churches about? What's going on in these two chapters? So we're going to take that at the first half. We're going to break and we're going to sing a psalm together that prepares our hearts for the second half. And we're going to come back and we're going to look specifically at the letter written to the church at Ephesus. So that's the game plan. We're going to do an introduction. We're going to sing the psalm together. We're going to come back and look at the church at Ephesus. And then we're going to have a time of prayer and reflection toward the end of the service. So if you have your phone open, you have your Bible open to Revelation Chapter 2, I want us to read verses 1 through 7 just to get the ball rolling on this. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, and I just realized what I did. The verses on the screen are New American Standard Version. I didn't pick up New American Standard, so in order not to cause confusion, I'm going to read off the screen. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand The one who walks among the seven golden lampstands says this, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men. And you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and they are not. And you found them to be false. And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen, and repent, and do the deeds you did at first, or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God." May God bless the reading of his word. So a couple of weeks ago, as a sermon illustration, or sometime in a sermon, I mentioned the rotary dial phones, the ones where you spin it around, it comes back, and how pretty much anybody under the age of 25 probably has not ever seen or used a rotary phone. And after the service, I was having a conversation with somebody about those rotary phones and the old style of phones, and we started talking about something called party lines, with the old landline. Okay, 
So here's your opportunity to admit how many of you were on a party line, landline phone at some point? Oh wow, that's a disturbing number of people, so uh, <laughs> that's fantastic. So party line oversimplified, not the technical side of the equation because I did one of you who worked in, uh, in the phone companies to explain the technical side, but the short and long of it was with party line students, you could pick up the phone and hear someone else's conversation that was happening that was on that same, that same set. And so think how disturbing that is now that you were having a phone conversation and someone else could listen in on that conversation. I use that illustration because in some sense, that's what we get in Revelation 2 to 3. We are able to listen in on a conversation that Jesus is having with, with these churches. In a sense, we're able to read their mail. These letters that are sent, sent to these churches speak not only to those churches, but they speak also to us. God wants us to be able to listen in. He gives us the party line so that we can listen in and say, what was he saying to those churches, and what through those letters does he also want to say to us? One of the things that we find in Scripture, and this is particularly true here, and this is listed on your notes because it's so core to how we understand these passages and how we understand the New Testament, is these letters were written to particular churches, but they were written for all churches. So they were written to particular churches, but they were written for all churches. And that's how scripture works. It was written to a particular audience at that time. And so in order to understand it, we wanna understand how it was written to those churches. It, makes, it matters that we understand that. And equally true is that we believe that scripture was also written for all churches, for all believers. And so sometimes people will say, you know what, I would read the Bible, I would care more about the Bible if it was relevant to my life or if it was relevant to our lives now. But that's just the point. Scripture as given by God to these particular churches is automatically and immediately relevant to our lives because we are included in the body of Christ. It's not as if well, if God would have continued to send these letters, if he would have continued to do this over hundreds of more years, then I would believe the Bible. No, God's word has been given to the church through these individual churches so that all believers could receive that. Let me deal with an issue up front here when it comes to these churches in Revelation 2-3. to Depending upon your background and depending upon which study Bible you have in front of you, sometimes these seven churches will be made to correspond to certain parts of church history. In other words, it wasn't really the letter written to the church at Ephesus. It was the letter written to these churches that existed for this particular amount of time in church history. And then the next letter was written to another part of church history and another letter... I'm 99% sure that that's not what's going on here in the book of Revelation. The letter written to Ephesus was really written to Ephesus. And the letter written to Smyrna was really written to Smyrna. It was meant to be received by these churches. So don't, don't begin to think, well, that only had to do with this period in church history or that only had to do with this group of people. No, God's word is speaking for all of us. He desires that we would receive this as his word and respond to it. One of the things that's striking about these letters is that there are seven of them. Now, what do we know about the number seven in the ancient world and in biblical understanding? 
It's this letter of completion. It's not this letter. Good night. It's this number of completion. It's this number of a universal idea. So in some real sense, because we have seven letters, it's saying, and these letters are to the church, spoken to these churches, but for all churches. On top of that, you have something very interesting that happens in these letters. There's incredible symmetry, meaning there are all these parallel statements that happen to each of them. I want to show you a couple of things. So starting out in verse 1 of Revelation chapter 2, but then it happens in verse 8, it happens in verse 12, it happens in 18, it happens three times in chapter 3. If you're a Bible highlighter or a Bible underline, this is a time just to go to town and start underlying things. But in each of these sections at the beginning, you always get to the angel of the church in, and then it will list a particular location, and then it will say write, and then it will give some description of Jesus. And almost always, here's the fascinating part, almost every time that you get this identification or this description of Jesus, it refers back to something that was used in chapter one. Now that may not seem like a big deal, but what John is doing as he's writing here and receiving these visions and these letters is he's tying into this initial vision in chapter one of Revelation and he's using that foundation about Jesus to then address the churches in chapters 2 to 3. So he's providing these, these links, these thematic links, these descriptions of Jesus, and he's using it in chapters 2 to 3. The entire book of Revelation, the entire book of Revelation follows a pattern of you have a vision scene, and then you have a judgment scene, and then you have a vision scene, and a judgment scene, and a vision, and it goes in these patterns. So Revelation chapter 1 is this opening vision of Jesus as the victorious reigning king, and it's meant to be read against the Roman Empire, that the emperor is not Lord, that Jesus is Lord. So Revelation 1 is this opening vision of Jesus' greatness. Then Revelation 2 and 3 is a judgment against the church. In other words, because of how great Jesus is and what he's done in your lives, your life should look like this, but unfortunately it often looks otherwise. So you have that in two to three. Then in Revelation four and five, you get this incredible vision of heaven, reminding us just because things are a mess down here on earth, God has things in control overall. That's a good word for right now in our world, that you got this contrast where Revelation 4 to 5 is this vision of heaven. Then Revelation 6 through 20, you get a judgment against evil and sin and the enemy, Satan. So you get this incredible section from 6 to 20 that's a judgment against evil. And then in Revelation 21 and 22, at the very end of the book, you get this incredible vision of the new creation, of how God will make all things new. And he ties together Genesis chapter 1 and Revelation 21 and 22, and he puts it all together as this is what God has been about. So Revelation follows these patterns, and these chapters 2 to 3 that gives the letters to the churches is meant to say, because Jesus is so good, and because he's victorious over evil, live a life that points to his greatness. Don't give in to this life that leads you astray. And so we know that these letters are written to these churches, but look at also how they end. Each of these letters, when it comes to the ending portion of it, it has this ending phrase that says, he 
who has an ear, let him, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is why we know that these letters are meant to be received by all the churches and not just the individual church to which it was written. Because it says at the end of the letter written to Ephesus, it says, and this should be received by all the churches. And you find that every time at the end of these seven letters that are given in chapters two to three. So we know that it's a message that we need to hear. Why do we need to hear it in a way that those churches heard it? Because, and this is the next part in your notes, because these letters were written to threatened churches. They were written to churches that were threatened by two things. One was internal lack of stability, internal brokenness, internal problems, and they had external opposition. They had trouble coming from the outside, from the government, from those who were opposed to the ways of the Lord. Now this is kind of oversimplified, but churches will always break down on one of these two things. Either things fall apart on the inside, from the inside out, or the churches begin to give in because of these outward pressures. And the Lord knew that every church in every age would face these two things. Will we internally remain connected to one another and to the Lord? And will we externally be able to withstand all of the pressure that comes in to be faithful to the Lord? And so we have these letters that are written as God's word to the church. And it says there on your notes that the form of these letters, they take the form of a royal decree. When you go back to ancient literature and you look at how these royal edicts and royal decrees were given from the emperor, from the king, they take on this form, but they have the function of being prophecy. And prophecy is always a message to wake up and pay attention, and it's also a message of hope that you do not have to give in to sin, you do not have to give in to evil. And so what you get in these seven letters in chapters two to three are these royal letters from a divine being, we would say the one God, the one true God, giving these edicts to his people, and he's giving them as a prophecy. And he's saying, now is the time to pay attention. Now is the time to hear the word of the Lord. There is hope. You do not have to give in to this external opposition. You do not have to give in to internal lack of stability. There is a way to follow after the pattern of Christ. So when you read the book of Revelation and you come to chapters two to three and you get these letters and then you go to chapter four, don't pretend that you leave chapters two to three in the background. The way Revelation works is it builds on itself one part after another. It begins with the greatness of Christ. It moves to the reality of the churches. It reminds us of God's greatness in heaven. It reminds us of the battle against evil and it reminds us of God's ultimate victory. The churches of Revelation 2 to 3 aren't just part of the story. They're how God works out his plan of good overcoming evil, of Christ defeating Satan. And we as the church are called to live that out. So down at the, your notes, there on the last part of that first section, hopefully I put a question. If not, I meant to. Will the church in the present, hearing the word of God, follow the way of Christ? Will the church in the present, us gathered here as God's people, will we hear the word of God and receive it as the word of God 
And then will we commit to following the way of Christ? It was true for these churches that are addressed here in Revelation 2 to 3, and it's equally true of us. There's this war of words. There's will we trust the word of Christ, or will we give in to all of these false words over here that seek to lead us away from the ways of God? What we're going to do here in just a moment is we're going to stand and sing a song asking that God would speak to our hearts. And then we're going to come back and we're going to look specifically at what God says to the church at Ephesus. And it's a difficult word, but it's also a reassuring word about what God has called us to do, what God's called us to be as a church. Let me pray over us and then we're going to stand and we're going to sing a song together and we're going to come back and dive into this first church here in Revelation 2. Father, I pray that as we have gathered here to hear your word, to worship with your people, to be reminded of your goodness, that we would know that you spoke to these churches at the end of the first century, and through that powerful word, God, you desire to speak to our lives today. And any time we hear your word, not my words, But anytime we hear your word and we encounter the word of God, there always has to be a response to that. And so God, I pray that in the midst of any distractions this morning, that we would hear your word and that we would prepare ourselves to respond to that in confession and repentance and thanksgiving of your goodness and forgiveness. So God, open our hearts as we sing together now. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. As we go back to Revelation chapter 2. I want to remind you that as we experience God's word in our life, whether that means reading God's word at home on your own, or whether that means we gather as a church to study God's word, prayer is a response to God's word, to God speaking into our lives. If you reach a point in your life, and this is, this is kind of a, a side comment before we get back into this, if you reach a point in your life that you just feel like your prayer life is dull it's not happening, you want to pray, you just don't know what to pray or what to say, the best thing you can do is read Scripture and then allow what you're reading in the Bible to become the springboard for your prayers to God, that he's given us his word. As we experience his word, we pray that word, we allow that to guide our prayers. And so as we were thinking about singing these psalms together this morning and studying the the word of God, we've seen that psalm about prayer, knowing that as we experience God's word, we also at the same time want to respond to him in prayer. One of the things that I encourage you to do as you listen to sermons, not, not just to me, but as you listen to sermons, that as you're listening, you're praying, you're saying, God, search my heart, search me, know my thoughts, let me respond to you. You may pray while you listen to sermons and think, oh Lord, help that young man up there. But uh, however you pray during the sermon, pray, pray however that might be, but pray in response to God's word. Okay, we go back to Revelation chapter two. Guys, did I put a map in the PowerPoint that I skipped over earlier? No map? Okay, we'll bring that map up uh, next week. I want you to be able to see where these churches in Revelation are located. If you pull up just Google Maps on your phone or you pull up something on your phone or a tablet or a computer later at home and you're looking at a map of modern day Turkey, if you find a map of modern day Turkey, On the far west side of modern-day Turkey 
is the area where these seven churches addressed in Revelation are, are located. And as this area was developing, there was a city there that became very prominent, both in terms of government and economy. The city was called Ephesus. It was a crucial port city. It's actually no longer located on the water. There's been so much sedimentation that's built up from this river that Ephesus, modern-day Ephesus, that doesn't go by that name, but it's now located inland a little bit because there's been so much land build up. But it was a prominent port city there, famous in the ancient world. One of the seven wonders of the ancient world was located in Ephesus, and it is... Somebody? Temple of, yeah, Temple of Artemis. We were, we were going the right way. So uh, I'm glad to see that everyone's education is paying off, that we're, we're, we're doing well. So uh, every teacher in the room is excited about it. No, no, I, I don't mean to downplay that. But yes, one of, the, one of the great wonders of the ancient world was located there in Ephesus. There's still some incredible, it's probably one of the most famous cities to go and just look at ancient um, archaeological finds and the way that things have been uh, shown to have happened there in Ephesus. But there was something else that was prominent in Ephesus. In Ephesus, you had the development of emperor worship, where people would begin to give worship to the Roman emperor. This developed in different stages and different ways, but you begin to have this happen there in Ephesus where worship is given to the human emperor and so when you read the book of Revelation and you see that Ephesus is located first in these letters, you can know that John is confronting this. He's confronting the question of who's in charge. He's confronting the question of who's Lord. Is it the emperor or is it Jesus? And so he's, he's tying this in. Ephesus would have also been one of the places that Paul was based on his missionary journeys that you read about in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 18, we find out a lot more about what's going on there, but it was one of the prominent bases for mission efforts, and so the gospel would spread out into this area that was called Asia and Asia Minor, and the gospel would go out there. An interesting part about Ephesus is later in church history, at the, as you get to the end of the first century, there's pretty strong tradition that John was based in Ephesus toward the end of his life. And so you have this ministry happening there. When you get into the early part of the second century, so those early years of the hundreds AD, you had a man named Ignatius of Antioch. He was one of the church leaders at this time. And he goes on this prison journey to Rome and he writes a really prominent letter to the church at Ephesus. So this would have been a church that was well known. This would have been a solid church. Let's look at these verses and see what else we can find out here. It says in verse one, to the angel, of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now there's a lot of different imagery going on there in those verses there, especially verse one. There's a good deal of controversy about what is meant when it says he holds the seven stars in his right hand. Two prominent theories, and I don't even know that I can give you a good answer on which one is more likely to be right. One theory there of what is meant is that these seven stars refer to church leaders, to prophets in the early church who would go around and spread the word of God, and so Jesus is, is in control. He's holding these early prophets. Another theory is that the seven stars referred to the planets, 
that this was a common way of referring to the planets. At that time, there were thought to be seven major planets in our solar system. We always learned there were nine. Now people learn there are eight or maybe hundreds, and we're all completely confused about how many planets exist in our solar system. But besides that, kids, uh, at this time, it was pretty prominent that there were seven planets in the solar system. And so this language here may be a language in verse 1, to him who holds the seven stars in his right hand. In other words, in his very hand, he's able to hold the universe. That good little kid song, he's got the whole world in his hand, He's got the entire universe in his hand. And, and if forced to choose, I would choose that as probably the most likely interpretation of, of this, this phrase. It's talking about God's power. It's talking about his, his sovereignty among all of creation. And then look at the very next phrase, though. It says, he who walks among the seven golden lampstands. We know that these lampstands refer to churches. So watch what's happening in verse 1. There's a reference to his power, to his sovereignty, but there's also a reference to his presence among the churches. He walks among the churches. He holds us in his hand, and yet he's present with us. Don't miss the beauty of how God works among his people, that he is sovereign over all creation, that he's the one who has all power, and yet he's present with his people. And both of those realities about who we know God to be are present at the beginning of this letter. Then you go to verse 2. In verse 2, it says about the church at Ephesus, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. Here in these verses, you have some very, very positive statements about the church at Ephesus. As we go through this entire next part of the sermon, don't miss the fact that Ephesus is an incredible church. It, in some ways, is a model church. They've got a lot of things going on for them. What do they have going? I know your works. You get things done. Your toil and your endurance, you have that stick-withitness that makes for a good church, a good group of people. You can't bear with those who are evil. So it's talking about their morality. It's talking about their focus on the right things. And you've tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you found them to be false. This is a church that upheld doctrine. So don't miss this. They do good works. They endure they're moral, and they have good, solid doctrine. They believe the right things about Scripture. Sounds like a pretty good church. Sounds like they've got things together. It even says down in verse 6, in verse 6 it says, You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Nicolaitans, we don't know a lot of details about them, but we do know that they are a group that was teaching things that were contrary to the truth about Jesus, that they were probably allowing for certain behaviors that didn't honor Christ, and they were teaching things that were false about Jesus. And it says here, you hate them. You want nothing to do with that. You're built on solid doctrine. And then there's verse 4. But I have this against you that you have abandoned, or it says that you have left. Sometimes they will even say you've fallen down in verse five, but it says you've abandoned your first love. That idea of abandoning your first love can also just refer to the love you had at first. 
In other words, don't miss this, you've got all these things going for you, but the one thing you've missed is love. Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 2 in the Old Testament. Jeremiah was one of the prophets in the Old Testament, and in Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 2, it says, This is what the Lord says. I remember the devotion of your youth, how as a bride you loved me. This idea that God was giving them, I remember when we were in love, I remember when you really cared about me. Now, I'm terrible at preacher jokes, so I don't try preacher jokes very often, but here you go, I'm going to try one. So there's a story told about an older couple who owned a single cab pickup. They were farmers. They lived out in the country. They loved the Lord, loved one another. They were driving down the road one day, and the wife looked over at the husband, and she said, do you remember when we were dating and first married, how we used to sit so close together in the truck, and we just leaned against each other, and we loved one another, and now, you know, we're just, we've got this space between us. And the old farmer looked over at his wife and said, well, I didn't move. This idea that we have this love at first that causes a single cab pickup to turn into a one-seat pickup because you're so in love, you so want to be with one another, and then over time, you begin to grow apart, literally, it seems like, in the cab of, of the pickup. This is the idea that God is communicating here. I want you to return to your first love, to that idea that everything we do is built on love. You go to Matthew chapter 24, verses 12 through 13, and this is actually a reference to the, uh, how things will happen with the end times. Jesus is giving this discourse. Matthew 24, because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. Jesus is acknowledging that as the world progresses, as history progresses, love is going to grow cold, that we're not going to be a loving people. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. These verses are probably going to sound pretty familiar to you. 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. This church had good works, they had endurance, they had morality, they had truth, and they were missing love. So what does verse five say? Verse five, Jesus says to this church, remember therefore from where you have fallen. That idea of falling gives off the picture of someone who was prideful and built up. Knowledge puffs us up, builds us up. They've fallen from that. They've fallen away from where they should be. And he says to repent. This is serious business. You cannot continue down this road. Do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. What does it mean there, remove your lampstand out of its place? It means that this church will lose its witness in the world. No love, no church, no witness. You're to be a lampstand. Jesus calls us to be a light to the world in Matthew chapter 5. And he says you can have good works, you can have endurance, you can have morality, you can have truth. But if you don't have love, I'm going to remove your church out of the way because you're not doing what I've called you to do. 
So we get here and we say, what does this passage have to say to us as fathers? What does this passage have to say to us as individuals? What does it have to say to us as a church here at Emmaus? And I want to be very, very careful at this point because what I could say next could come off entirely wrong. It could sound condemning and guilt-ridden, and I don't mean it that way at all. But imagine a church that was known in the community for its good works. And imagine a church that endured through some incredibly difficult times. And imagine a church in which many, many people, they were known for being upright, moral people, doing the right things, living the right lives. Imagine a church that was built on God's word and had incredible doctrine, taught what was right in the word of God. But Jesus might look at them and say, but do you love me? Do you love others? You're known for all these things in your community. Good works, endurance, morality, truth. But are you known for love? Love for God or love for others? Yes, both. Scripture never divides those two. Our love for God always flows out into love for others. And so as we think about this word to the church at Ephesus, we think about our lives here at Emmaus, and we say we could get all of these other things right. And I think we do have them right, and I couldn't be prouder to say that that's the case. But then we look at our lives and we say, and do we do those things because of love for God and love for others, or do we do those things just because that's what we're supposed supposed to do as a church? Are we driven by love for God and love for others, or are we driven by something else? When we think about applying the scripture to our lives, I put a couple of things there in your notes that I want us to consider as we come to a time of remembering and repenting and, and seeking the Lord during this response time. The first is don't confuse being busy, old, nice, or right with being Christian. We can be busy, we can do a lot of good things. We can be old, meaning we just outlast everybody else. We can be nice, we live a good, upright life in the world. We can be right, we know things in our head about scripture, and yet in the midst of all those, we can miss who Jesus is and how he wants to work in our lives. And so I would just ask every one of us individually to look at our lives and say, okay, if those first four things are true about my life, is my life built on the things of the Lord, meaning love, that God is love? John 13, Jesus tells his disciples that other people will know that they're his disciples because of love, not because of good works, not because of right doctrine, not because they hang in there with a smile. They'll know that they're his disciples because of love, love for one another. And so we look at our lives. Let me ask you a couple of questions on this. Think about marriage, how this works in marriage. Just because we endure in marriage and we talk about marriage doesn't mean that that marriage is built on love. And we look back at our lives and we think, am I engaged in marriage? Am I engaged with my family just because I'm supposed to keep going or am I driven by love? Think about our jobs. I do this job because it allows me to care for my family. It allows me to be able to do good things. I just need to keep going to endure to retirement. But is it driven by love? Love for God and love for others. The things that we do in our life, they can be the right thing, 
but done for the wrong reason. We're not doing them because we're doing them out of love for God and love for others. The second thing on there, dads, men, return to love for your family and love for God. As men, as dads, it's so easy to say, I'm working hard for my family, I'm trying to hang in there, I'm trying to do the right things, I'm trying to teach my kids to obey. And we could get all of those things right as dads and we could miss love. And in the process, our kids could misunderstand what it means to really be a follower of Jesus. They thought a follower of Jesus was somebody who did nice things and believed the right things, not realizing that we're driven because of God's love for us and the love that he desires us to have for others. Dads, husbands, and I point all 10 fingers back at me, it's, past, it's possible to be the pastor and to be a dad and a husband and not be driven by love. And I have to go back day after day, week after week, and say, what is this based on? Why are we doing these things? Number three, you say, okay, I wanna do that. So we've gotten to the point, you agree, I want to be characterized by love. How do I do that? Remember where you came from. We often stop loving and living by love when we forget the power of the gospel at work in our lives. When we forget what it was like for us to experience God's love in our lives for the first time, we so often then quickly forget what it looks like to show that love to others. The most important thing that we can do if we need to love others is we go back and remember what it is for God to love us. If we're called to good works, if we're called to endurance, if we're called to morality, if we're called to truth, all of those things stem from the love that God has for us that he showed us in Christ. What this means is that a church people, a group of church people who have forgotten the power of God's love and salvation in their lives are often and usually not telling other people about God's salvation. We don't share our faith but because we forgot what it is for God to work in our lives. And what John tells the church here in this letter and what Jesus is telling the church through John in this letter in Revelation 2 is return to that. Go back to where it started. Remember what it was for Jesus to save you. Remember what it was to be in darkness and separated for God, from God and yet to experience his love and then live out of that. Go back to the heart of the gospel. The gospel isn't something we get past and say, well, I'm glad I'm saved, now I can move on. It's no, remember where you came from. Uh, we pastored in Mississippi for a while, and those old school Mississippi guys would say, remember where you came from, boy. Uh, and that's this idea, remember where you came from. Remember the foundation of your life. It's not what you can accomplish, it's it is finished. It's what he has done for us, and that becomes the foundation of a loving life. And then finally, number four, when we're driven, when we return to that love, we will be a people who share the good news of Jesus with others. One of the things we've had to deal with here at Emmaus as we just kind of look at our own hearts and look at what it means to be a church is because over the 30 years of this church family, because a lot of the growth and a lot of the really good things we've been able to do as a church family have come as people from other churches for whatever reason have come to be a part of this church, it's given us good works, endurance, morality, good doctrine. We have all of those gifts, but what we've had to realize as a church is in the midst of that, 
Maybe what we've lost sight of is sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with others. And what that really means, and what I really don't want to confront in my life, is that means we've lost love. Because if we really, really understand what it is for God to love us, and what it means to love others, then we will live our lives wanting other people to know that, to experience that, to experience that hope of Christ. And so as a church family, we're at a place where we just have to look at ourselves and say, is this letter to Ephesus actually written to Emmaus? <laughs> is this letter that God wrote to Ephesus, is it for us? And I think the answer is obviously yes. And the way that I want us to respond to that is just to come to a time of repentance and reflection. Here in a minute, we're gonna have some time just for you to pray right where you are and say, God, look at my heart. Look at my heart individually. Look at us as a church family. What are we characterized by? What are we driven by? And then after we do that, we're gonna stand and we're gonna sing a song expressing our confidence in God's salvation, our confidence in his forgiveness and his hope. If you would bow your heads with me right now, I would ask us to come to a time of repentance and reflection. I wanna share, I wanted to share this passage this morning with you not so that we would feel beat down, not so that we would go away depressed, but so that we would have a chance together to hear God's word and say, Father, search me and know my heart, test me, know my anxious thoughts, see if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Dads, husbands, Are you known for love? Are you driven by what it means to love God and to love others? That you love your wife, you love your children, you're not doing things out of obligation, you're doing them because of what Christ has done in your life. Teenagers, as you guys think about what it means to be a Christian. It's so easy to slip into this pattern of just doing the thing that's right in front of you and we don't check our heart. I pray that this summer that God would call you back to what it means to love him and to love others. That that would be the foundation for your lives. If it's about good works and right teaching, you're gonna be tempted to move away from that at some point. But if it's based on love for God and love for others, it will become the foundation for your lives. Elementary kids who are here as you're praying to God, think about the ways that you can show love to those around you. That God would work in your heart so that you would know how much he loves you and how he wants to work in your life to impact those around you at school and on your sports teams and in your activities. And Emmaus, may God be merciful to us that we would continue in good works, we would continue to endure, we continue to do right, we would continue to teach the things of your word and God, we would do it from a foundation of love. 
that results in us reaching out to people who are hurting, who are far from you, who need to know about your love. God, call your church to repentance. Call your church to remember where we came from. God, do in us and through us what we can never do on our own. God, thank you for your greatness. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.